Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. As most of you know, we've been having a discussion on this show for the last couple of months on how Christians can respond to our culture. And one of the interviews that was most popular among people was uh, my interview with Rod Dreher, who recently wrote a book uh, called The Benedict Option, where he advocates for a strategic retreat uh, back into our communities to rebuild Christian communities so that we actually have uh, the spiritual and intellectual forces to withstand the secular storms that are coming, and uh, many of us would point out are already here. And I thought it was a very good book. It's been a very controversial book because a lot of people object to certain points that he makes, especially concerning the value of retreat when Christian communities seem under attack. And there's a couple of other books that have come out recently as well. Uh, one of them is called Empires of Dirt, uh, which is by Douglas Wilson of Christ Church in Idaho, which is very good. But the best book that I have written on, or read, pardon me, on this topic of the last few months has to be uh, Professor Anthony Esselin's book, Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture. It's really just a beautiful book to read. It's 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 a pleasure from the literary sense. It's a pleasure in that he his analysis is easily as as depressing as Rod Dreher's in many ways, except for the fact that he addresses each cultural crisis with a very practical solution. So rather than finishing the book and and feeling uh, depressed and helpless. Uh, he instead advocates for, for small things we can do on the community level, on the home level, on the church level, everything from returning to uh, the great spiritual and Christian music of the past to re-engaging with the intellectual and literary heritage of Western civilization to just learning how to be naturally human again, uh, from just rejecting all of the lies that have been accepted by the political and intellectual elites of society. And he's, he's very well positioned to do this. He's a, a writer and a teaching fellow in residence at Thomas More College of the Liberal Arts in Merrimack, New Hampshire. He's written a number of other great books that, that some of you may have read before. He wrote The Politically Incorrect Guide to Western Civilization, which was published by uh, Regnery Press in 2008. He published uh, Ten Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child, which a lot of my uh, friends, young parents, have read and highly recommend. And his book, uh, Defending Marriage in 2014, attempted to really break down what the gay marriage debate meant. He's written other books as well, but Out of the Ashes, I think, is, is probably his most spectacular. I couldn't put it down when I was done reading it. Uh, my wife began reading it, uh, then my dad borrowed it, and it's just it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful book is the best way I can put it. And he essentially advocates uh, for a cultural chemotherapy that correctly identifies what the problems are, correctly identifies how postmodernism has crept into Christian communities and crept into our own lives, and then just advocates for a Christian lifestyle, Christian culture, and Christian communities that by the time you're done his book will seem attainable, even though he points out that postmodernism is in stage four, that our culture is in crisis. He pulls no punches. He says things in a way that is even far more politically incorrect than Rod Dreher himself does. Uh, but at the same time, uh, when you're done the book, you'll feel like you have a better handle on where we are and where we need to go from here. So I've been trying to set up an interview with him uh, for a couple of weeks now. Uh, we've been missing each other because he's uh, he's been moving and, and visiting Cape Breton, which he does every summer with his family. 
Uh, but today we finally connected and had that conversation, and we'll, I'm sure we'll be having many others, and, and I hope you all uh, get as much out of the conversation as I did. Well, just to start off, before we uh, get into talking about your book, it's interesting because in the book you discussed how uh, those who hold to traditional values will, will often uh, be forced to suffer for them. And I understand you've just left your, your previous and much-beloved job at Providence College and you've switched locations. Yeah, yeah. Um, for uh, 27 years I taught at the college that shall remain nameless, uh, and uh, for 25 or 25 and a half of them, I thought I had the best academic job of anybody I knew. Uh, I mean, I really, I really loved the job. I, thr- I thrived in it. And uh, uh, then uh, the college decided to take a sharp turn towards identity politics. And um, when I wrote a couple of articles asking people what the heck they mean by cultural diversity when when they don't seem to be interested in studying any culture at all besides the one they happen to be living in, and and that from a political angle. It's all contemporary Western identity politics. Well, I had to be, uh, had to be slandered um, by the, by the uh, administration twice in front of uh, 5,000 people. Um, I had to be called all kind of filthy things. And... Um, it's all untrue. It's, it's, it was disgusting and vicious. Um, and then I suddenly, I suddenly realized that uh, the place that I had loved no longer existed. Um, it had uh, it had sold its soul over to uh, over to politics. So now I'm at a new college. Um, when well, new new for me, it's about I think it's 40 years old or so. Thomas More College of the Liberal Arts, a faithfully Catholic. A small school in New Hampshire that uh, deserves a lot more support than uh, your typical alma mater deserves. And that leads right into one of the things you highlight in your book uh, over and over and over again. And you always say that politics takes up way too much space in our lives, that in order to engage and live as Christians in modern culture, uh, for most of us, instinctively, we think of politics. How are we going to get the right people elected? How are we going to ensure that you know people who defend religious liberty are put in those positions? But you make the very compelling point that, that politics has driven out so much in our lives that is necessary and has taken up a, a inordinate amount of space. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Whenever I whenever I use the word politics, I I have to be careful of the context because in its original meaning, right, it, the, in the way that Aristotle would have used it or Plato or Socrates, it meant um, that those things having to do with the polis and the polis was uh, relatively small, self-governing. Um, we might call it uh, city-state or county. Um, something smallish on the size of ancient Athens, which is probably no bigger than the state of Delaware, the, the whole of the Athenian state. Um, so it meant, uh, it meant being concerned as, as, a, as a member of a, of a free, uh, self-governing thing, being concerned with the common good and, and taking actions for the common good. Now, if you put it that way, uh, the, the problem with the with the United States now uh, is, and perhaps many other Western countries, it's not that we have too much politics, but we have almost none. 
that's left. I mean, there's almost nothing that local ordinary people can do um, uh, by way of uh, securing the common good for themselves and their, their children. Um, it's all been taken up by mass politics, which is maybe a different kind of monster entirely. So we, I guess, you know, we have to be concerned about um, what, uh, uh, you know, whether we put uh, irresponsible people or sane people um, in charge of uh, Jabba the State. But I have a feeling that Jabba the State is going to keep on doing what it's doing, almost regardless of who we put there. Um, the, the real question is, should, shall we somehow find a way to revive what's truly political, uh, that is to say, has to do with a common good close to home? Um, that's a big question. And that doesn't that doesn't that question has something but not a whole lot to do with elections in your view is it possible for people to get on with their lives without being consistently interfered with with by bigger government the, the war over religious liberty seems to be an enforcing of a new morality from the top down and once enforced from the top down uh, isn't there something to be said for for trying to target those at the top yeah there's something to be said for it it's 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 you know it's part of the war uh, at hand, right? Um, but it's not the whole of it. It may not even be the most important part. It it's it is part. It's part. Uh, but one thing, for instance, um, you 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 obviously uh, let's take for example something again closer to home. Obviously, it's a good thing to find out um, whether the persons who are running for your local school board are sane or insane right. and try to vote for those who are sane. But if you expect if you expect anything really good to come out of the local school system, then I think you're fooling yourself. So while you do what you can to um, ameliorate the disaster that uh, is our public schooling um, for your own children, and maybe also for the sake of other people's children who might other people who might use you as an exemplar um you get your you get your own kids out of that um get them out uh, i don't care what you do um get them out uh, they, 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 what are they learning there <laughs> right after 12 years will they be, be able to read milton's paradise lost almost certainly not um will will they have their 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 morals intact almost certainly not. I mean, what 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 good is it? Get them out. Uh, teach them at home. Uh, form a homeschooling co-op. Uh, begin the task, uh, arduous task of rebuilding uh, private schools that respect the family and um, actually do want to impart the great tradition of learning to to, to young people. There are such things that are being invented all over the place in the United States, um, and again, they need they they need our support. But get them out of the poison vat, you know. Uh-huh. It's the first order of business. Get them out of there. And then that's an interesting uh, uh, point. The education point was was was, was part of the the uh, the that was the favorite part. Uh, that I read simply because it made a lot of sense to me due to the fact that I spent a lot of time researching on what types of sex ed are being taught. I don't know how, how much you keep track of what's going on in here in Canada, but the legislation that's being passed on almost an annual basis at this point lays the framework for further ensuring that no kid will emerge 
from these these schools unscathed, uh, the pro-life movement works very hard to uh, to reach out, for example, to immigrant communities who often have very traditional values. Um, right. Those immigrant communities are complaining that um, their children are losing their cultural heritage and traditions in one generation now because of the smartphone and internet porn, and they're basically turning out with the same terrible values as the postmodern white kids did. Um, and how do you start to talk to parents about what's what's necessary and what's not. So just to give you an example, my parents raised us without a television because they said that um, they had no desire to compete with with those they disagreed with for our values. Uh, And instead, they would buy us as many books as we could read. That was the limit, and we just had to read them. Um, And so I got the opportunity to read a lot of the classics before the seventh grade because that's what was in front of me, and, and I really enjoyed it. But uh, I find that, that that experience, as limited as mine was, compared to what you recommend in your book, um, it, it's it's so foreign to people that they can't even wrap their heads around it. Um, I'm arguing with parents about their, their 12-year-old getting a smartphone, uh, much yeah. less just keeping them away from, from, from entertainment. How do you start to help parents, often they themselves having been sort of severed from the intellectual legacy of, uh, of Western civilization, how do we go about convincing them to change the way they do things with their kids? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's quite a question, isn't it? <laughs> um, especially when I think I'm trying to adjust my, my thinking now to, uh, to Canada, which I love in a, in a different way from the ways in which I love the United States. Um, I love the people of Canada for their uh, for their generosity, their their cheerfulness. Um, I I wonder if an appeal can be made to Canadians um, on the basis of uh, uh, the common good that would strike American ears as immediately a little bit suspicious. Or you're not treating me as an individual, All right? Um, can Canadians still be persuaded that when their families are shot to hell um, because of uh, because of the bad deeds of grown-ups right uh, begetting bearing children out of wedlock uh, the chaos that ensues from that from um, from divorce at will uh, they can if, if they can be made to look at the disaster that they leave for their children could they be brought round to rethinking the sexual revolution on the basis of its effects on the common good? Um, that, that might be, I think that can be done. That, that will require more than one or two people. It may require 50 years of persuasion. Uh-huh. Um, if, you have a, if you have somebody, though, who retains uh, more than a residue of, um, of allegiance to the Christian faith, then you then you might be able to say to that person, hey, look, you know, you know what your son, daughter for that matter, but you know what your kid is going to be doing with that smartphone. You know damned well what he's going to be doing to it, with uh-huh. it. because in fact that's what you would have been doing with it, and in fact, truth be known, that's what you sometimes yourself do with it. Okay, right. You look at porn. If you think for a moment that a 12-year-old boy is going to use his smartphone in order to read a classic work of literature or look at uh, works of art that he'd never get, get to visit, he'd never get to visit in person by T. 
Matisse and then Raphael and Leonardo and, and so on, then you're an idiot. He's going to be using the smartphone to look at porn. It's going to burn those images into his head. And if you think that he's only going to be looking at one kind of porn, you're also an idiot. Um, you're an idiot. Why don't you just buy your kid a subscription to Hustler magazine? Um, oh, I would never do that. I would never want that in the house. Well, you're a fool. What do you think the smartphone is? Yeah. It's that to the, to the hundredth power. You're an idiot. There's nothing that the kid needs with that. You want to give, give the kid um, uh, you know, a first-generation cell phone so that he can call you in case of an emergency? Okay, maybe. But otherwise, come on. What, 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 what point does it have? And while all these kids are spending all that time on, uh, on that, what are they not doing? They're not reading books. They're not going outside. They're not making anything with their hands. They're not learning anything. You're robbing them of their youth and their innocence and, um, and uh, most of their brain power, too, goes to waste. So wh- why did you write this book? One of the things that's interesting is there's been, a, there's been a lot of books in the last five or six years. They kind of discuss the end of culture as we know it and how Christians can properly respond. Your book, in some ways, painted one of the darkest pictures, but also was a lot more hopeful than other recent offerings. Uh, the way you step-by-step work through different cultural phenomenon and explain how Christians can respond uh, or, how, or how Christians can build something anew was a lot different than, say, the tactical retreat of Rod Dreher's also very good book that I read recently, The Benedict Option. Um, the, while you guys both had the same analysis to some degree, um, there was a lot more optimism just in, inherent in the solutions that you put forward. Yeah, well, I think that uh, uh, I have... See, I, I, I've, I've taught literature and history and philosophy and theology over the course of the last 4,000 years, right? I mean, I've, I've got a, I've got a, well, I take the broad view of these things. I think Rod tries to do that, too. I think he, well, he does. Um, but I look at it this way. I say, all right, uh, I'm not going to put a pretty face on anything that I see. Um, it's, it's, it's ugly. It's absurd. Uh, and I know it, I am painfully aware of it, because it's impossible for me not to be painfully aware. For instance, how ignorant college professors and college students are, because I read the private letters of people who lived 150 years ago, and I know damned well that it would be difficult for a college professor, uh, forget about to write those letters, that never happened, but even to read those letters and make sense of them. And as for college students, not one in a hundred. Okay? I know this. I know this. Okay. However, I also know that um, if, there is, if there are things that are perfectly natural and, and quite within the capability of human beings to accomplish, because they've accomplished them before and they've accomplished them under more difficult uh, material circumstances than we face now, because we are very wealthy, um, the, these things can be done again. Okay. Now, uh, they're not necessarily things that are going to be uh, dictated from the top down. Very rarely are they. Um, But there is no reason, for instance, there is no reason at all why, I mean, to take a seemingly minor example, but I don't think it's minor. There is no reason why we have to sing stupid hymns in church. 
um, Protestants now sing stupid uh, and and heretical and trashy stuff, and so do Catholics. But there's no reason for it. Um, there is no reason why human beings, ordinary human beings, cannot learn again what uh, what poems do, and what re- poems that reflect upon theology do, and um, and what a hymn sounds like. What kinds of melodies congregations can sing. This this is not uh as they say it's this is not rocket science this is an ordinary thing um it's an ordinary human thing for people to get together and uh play rather than watch sports okay um well if if the coal miners in the town where i grew up in if they could do it then we can do it. we have the capacity to do it what's wanting is the will um, but the will is under our control. Okay, I mean a lot of these things are within are within reach of us. Again, now it, it that that's gonna, uh, when I say us, I don't mean the mass culture out there. I mean Christians getting together to determine to do something. Um, and what I have in mind are things that are normal and ordinary within. It doesn't take Michelangelo. Okay. Uh, Michelangelo comes once in a thousand years, but it doesn't take Michelangelo. Um, it just takes ordinary people with clear heads and broad shoulders willing to take up the shovel and start to dig out the rubble. Well, it's very, very interesting because you say things that are normal, and normal is a, is, a, is a very politicized word at the moment because you have a lot of media figures pointing to the behavior of, of members of the Trump administration and saying, uh, this isn't normal, never start to think that this is normal. And regardless of the accuracy of that analysis, it's very hard to take people who are trumpeting the idea that men could get pregnant very seriously when they try to tell us what is and is not normal. How do we... How do we begin to, when the rest of the culture seems to have gone nuts, I published an article a while ago just listing off ten statements that were controversial in 2017, one of them being men can't get pregnant, things like that, which which, which anybody with no education, um, right. with no literacy, would once have just instinctively known. Uh, this is why we have some immigrants coming from some places in the world that have not been privileged to be able to afford an education, yet are stunned by the number of stupid things we believe when they arrive, because they still have an instinctual knowledge that hasn't been sort of warped out of them yet. Um, how do you go about restoring any sort of uh, social concept- consensus on, on normal to begin with? Uh, perhaps I should have used the word natural. Ah, um, yes. <laughs> which is also loaded in a different way. Um, it's natural. That is, it's in accord with human nature. And, uh, and here I... I here Oh, the funny thing is, all of uh, the sciences, the, the natural sciences, in, in, in this regard, are on our side. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, biology is on our side, uh, and physics, the, the, physiolo- the physiological facts of the human body, male and female, um, and the physics that, is, uh, that flows from that. That is right, the, the male the typical male hand and arm are going to be able to do things that are different. It's uh, a wider range of things than the typical female hand and arm. And you, you, you can't dispute that because the, 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 the physics that flows from the physiology determines it. 
not a matter of, of opinion. It's a matter of observation. Anyway, um, uh, we, we could say uh, that anthropology is on our side, too, because we have the witness of every single culture known to man at every stage of technological development and in every clime, okay, everywhere you go, um, the world over and into the distant past, everywhere you go, uh, men and women are recognizably men and recognizably women. Um, and that, that should be a remarkable thing, right? I mean, you read about um, the, uh, you read the ancient Greek epics about uh, Hector and Achilles and uh, uh, Helen and Andromache, and you immediately recognize the men as certain kinds of men and the women as certain kinds of women. There's no confusion there. And uh, uh, so, so our opponents here are, our opponents here are building a, a house of sand. I mean, there's no foundation to it. Um, we need to laugh at it. Um, charitably, if possible, but sometimes just frankly, to embarrass uh-huh. and, and and to say to people, look, you know, this is this is frankly stupid. And not only is it stupid, but it's inconsistently stupid. Because on Monday you tell me there's no difference between the sexes, and then on Tuesday you say that this man over here is actually a woman in a man's body. Don't you realize that what you said on Monday makes it impossible for you to say that on Tuesday? Because there is no difference, according to you, on Monday, between a man and a woman. So how can you be a man trapped in a woman's body if there are no differences? Um, it's it's like saying, uh, no, this this thing is not red. It's red. Um, it's 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 it, it, it's completely absurd. Um, one of the things I was getting to uh, getting to say before I got myself off track there is that if if you're around people of goodwill who are not completely insane. Um, I'm thinking here especially of fathers of sons, fathers, um, married men who have a young son. Okay? Um, those guys, I think, are not deluded because they don't want their sons hanging around people who want to hang around, hanging around guys who want to hang around their sons. They don't, they don't want that. Um, you, you can appeal by your example you say you, you 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 show them this is what a normal human family looks like. Um, you have these boys and girls uh, behaving as boys, behaving as girls. They're happy. Um, they're, they're comfortable with their own sex. Um, they're doing boy things, girl things, sometimes kid things. They do it together. Um, they they aren't hooked on porn. Uh, they they don't have mouths that come out of a toilet, uh, they, they, they look their elders in the eye and smile, and a lot of people, without knowing really what the heck you're doing, a lot of people will be attracted to that, because it's natural, and it's beautiful, and they'll say, hmm, how'd you do that? How'd you get that? I want to know, what are you drinking? And then, well... But you you win people over you win people over that way. This is not going to be uh, this is not going to be an easy thing. It's right. Gonna, you know this this is going to take a while. But I don't see any alternatives. Um, there's there's as I say in the book over and over. Uh, okay, it's a disaster out there. There's there's nothing really that's been left intact. So 
so it's time to clear out the rubble and start building from scratch. So here's your shovel. Um, uh, you, you use it where you think you can do the best work there. You, you know, some people are going to have to shovel out the sewer. Uh, that's backed up. Other people are going to have to see if you know we can get some decent food for the kids. Uh, all kinds of tasks need to be done. You can't do everything, but everybody can do some things. So, time to get to work. Based on that, yeah. Sorry, that's the difference between my book and and Rod's book. Yes, very much so. Uh, and I was going to say, based on on your analysis of what our culture knows, doesn't know, and is capable of comprehending. I'm noticing that when you say people who aren't insane, who are people of goodwill. So there's a lot of people out there who just didn't care about gay marriage. They kind of go with the flow. But as postmodernism reaches stage four, um, they begin to be, they're, they're able to obviously identify um, the fact that these things don't work together. So, so to go uh, a bit further on your example, that you know that there are no gender differences, but then the tra- there is transgenderism. To take it a step further, it's it's offensive to say that this is a female characteristic. Yet this characteristic is used to prove that this man is a woman. Um, so it, it's gone from uh, something you can't say and a statement of no value to a statement of the utmost value, because it proves this fellow over here, who is clearly packing something that women don't, um, that <laughs> fellow is obviously a girl because of that thing you weren't allowed to mention before. Um, this is why you've got old guard feminists like Germaine Greer, who you know, once advocated the hookup culture as a way to break, and I quote, uh, women's dog-like devotion to men. She's now run to the tolerance buzzsaw because she is upset at the idea uh, that a man becoming a woman could ever identify with the female experience because they can't do something like menstruate. Like, this seems kind of normal for normal people, right? You know, guys making jokes about girls being grumpy during that time of the month is now something that nobody's allowed to laugh at because men also have their period rate. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there who, care, who are kind of like, okay, um, when, when Joe and Bob got married, I was like, doesn't affect me. But this is, this, this is different. Um, this is crazy. Like, I'm not buying it anymore. There are a lot of people I run into um, who are, I'm able to say statements like, well, if you don't believe that men can get pregnant, um, you might think you're not on my side of the fence yet, but you're going to end up here because you are a transphobe. Just nobody said that to your face yet. Oh, brother. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh... Uh, uh, <coughs> I, you know, I, 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 I am going to be politically incorrect here, mm. as I've been, right? And say that uh, we, we have to, um, we, it might be useful for us to tailor what we say uh, to the sex of the person to whom we are saying it, whether we are saying it eye-to-eye, one-on-one, or whether it's in the hearing of other people, um, and the age of the person, and whether that person is married with children or not. Okay, um, so to a man who is married and has a child, okay, especially if he has a boy, uh, and there's no one else overhearing it, or only men are overhearing it, then. Um, then I think you can be blunt. You can be quite direct. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, and, and you can say, listen, pal, you're not fooling me. Okay? Because 
Um, if you found, if you had a 12, you, your boy is 8 now, and your boy is a good-looking boy. When he's 12, he's going to be a real good-looking kid. You tell me to my face that you would be okay with your kid having a sleepover with a, an older teenager, a boy, who had come out as gay. You, you, look, you look me in the eye and tell me that, that you'd be okay with that. And that kid, the older kid, has taken an interest in your son. You look me in the eye and say, Oh, well, well, no, that's a little bit different. That'd be, that'd be, char- why would you be uncomfortable with it? Right. Tell me. Tell me why. Okay? Tell me why. Uh, uh, tell me why you would be crushed that your kid had been experimenting that way. Tell me. Oh, well, 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 well. Because uh, he'll be facing discrimination. Bullshit. It's bullshit. Because you don't want that for your kid. You want your kid to grow up healthy and, and in a natural way so they'd be attractive to girls and attracted to them. You want him to do what you did, to take a woman in marriage and to have children. That's what you want for your son. And that is a normal thing, a natural thing, and you'd be wrong not to want it. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, you can put it to a guy right in his face. Yes. You say, you say, listen, if you think there's no difference, okay, if you think there's no difference, then um, when you catch your when you catch your teenage kid looking at porn, if you think there's no difference, why don't you recommend to him some gay porn if there's no difference? Right. If you don't care, why don't you say to him, well, you know, uh, why don't you try it out, see if you like it? Of course you wouldn't do that. You, 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 there's no way you would do that. And there's no way that a man will say in the hearing of other men um, that he would be okay with this. There's no way. Because he knows immediately, he knows that none of those guys will respect him. Um, they'll start to think, eh, maybe something, something up with this fellow. Um, it's not natural. And they know it. Now, in the presence of women, they may take a different tack altogether. This is why I think that, that women are best at talking to women head-to-head about these things, right, one-on-one, straight right. shooting, okay? Um, I think if we mix the sexes on, on these issues, we get people digging into a certain, uh, to, to what they think sounds right in front of their wives, the, the men will do. Right. Um, and, uh, and frankly, I don't. When it comes when it comes to this sort of stuff about sex, I don't think you can talk about it frankly uh, in mixed company. You know, I don't. I don't think it can be done. Um, well, especially anyway. f- especially with fathers to sons. Um, I yeah. at schools they ask me sometimes because I, I give presentations on it, and, and and a mother will put up her hand and ask, "Well, how do I talk to my son about this?" I said, "You don't." Um, if if you're uh, if if there's no father in the house, you know, find a brother that you trust, or maybe it's your father. But but it's he's never going to ask you honest questions, which no. which kind of brings me to one of the reasons I loved your book is because, like I said uh, in my review of it, it felt like cultural chemotherapy reading it. <laughs> the, 
the way the way that it just you 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 call things out even more bluntly than 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 those of us who write columns on this kind of stuff weekly, because um, you clearly just had it, um, but you you were you were fed up in an in an intellectual and articulate way and for several hundred pages, uh, and it was it was a very very enjoyable read. And one of the things that that crossed my mind is my grandmother's uh, ninety years old now. Um, her long term memory is fantastic. Her short term memory is not so good. Um, so she always asks me each time I go over there and visit her uh, what I do for work, and I work full time for for a pro life organization uh, that that works in in the culture on, on persuading people that abortion is wrong. And she she's known this for years, but now each time she'll say yes. Yeah, so what do you do, right? And I'll tell her that I work for a pro life organization, uh, and she'll say, well, what is pro life? And I'll say, well, we're against abortion. She'll say, okay, what's abortion? And I'll say, well, what's when somebody doesn't want their baby, so they get a doctor to get rid of it. And the look of horror on her face yeah. uh, when when I said that she had eleven children, and right. she, she lost one one to uh, one to miscarriage that, that, that still gets mentioned. Uh, when you go over to their house, the first thing my ninety year old grandmother and my ninety five year old grandfather will do is walk you over to the enormous family picture, and then you get to reiterate what you said last time, which is such a nice family, and you know <laughs> everybody's so good looking, and look at all the grandkids, and but she just she said. When I when I explained to her what abortion was, she just was like, "What do you mean not want their baby?" And that was it. Like I I couldn't actually get through uh, to her on, and I just left it. I said, "You know, you've you've raised your eleven kids. There's really no reason for me to to waste my time during my visit with you trying to explain the minds of other people uh, that are that are much less pure than yours are." But that that kind of struck me that divide between the generation where the sort of thing that I'm so used to it's something I talk about every day and I debate with with hundreds of members of the public, uh, it's something my grandmother um, can't even really wrap her head around. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, boy, there are plenty of things like that. See, well, um, this is, this is uh, one of the, here, here's one of the uses of actually knowing something about the way people thought and lived before the day before yesterday. Okay? We, we, we get a perspective on our own times. Um, and that's why I think that's one of the deeper reasons why our schools dispense with that. I've noticed in Canada, for instance, that um, uh, I, I originally came here believing that I would find uh, young people more conversant with British literature and the history of uh, English literature in general than in the United States. And I find that the opposite is the case, um, that, that if, if anything, they're, they're somewhat less likely here, even less likely here, to have uh, a knowledge of, let's say, Milton or, or, or those, then, then in the United States was already pretty bad. I don't know why that is, but uh, um, if one of the things that happens when you when you when you actually read books that are older than two days is that you encounter women like your grandmother, okay, um, for whom it is simply incomprehensible that that somebody would want to do away with a child. Um, you you also meet people, uh, and th- th- I still meet people who talk to me this way, who tell me these th- th- things, that um, they have no idea what it is, uh, uh, what sexual perversions were, even were. I have no idea. Okay? Um, I, th- th- one of my, um, which I don't know if I quoted it in the book, but the, the actor Sal Minio, who had totally screwed up youth, 
Uh, he was in reform school all the time. He's called a switchblade kid. Um, when he made the movie um, Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean, um, he, well, he said later that if he and Jimmy Dean knew, if he and James Dean knew that there was anything that two guys could do with each other, they'd have done it. But they didn't know. Okay? That's Hollywood. Right. That's James Dean and a, and a kid, who by that time was about 18, 19 years old, a kid who had lived on the streets in Brooklyn his whole life. I mean, that kid, would pro- you would think that kid would be exposed to everything. Yeah. He didn't know. Okay? Um, and that's not that long ago. Right? Uh, I mean, to... to uh, <laughs> Um, where was I going with this? Uh, it's I, we we need to get our young people to be aware that the silly assumptions of their own time are are out there. I mean, they're outliers. It's it's not just that old people would look upon them as silly. It's that every single human being on the face of the earth until the day before yesterday would have looked upon them not only as silly, but as as it's insane, as as uh, uh, bizarre, as if you had, as if you would try to to walk on your hands all day long. It's just crazy, okay. Um, and the reason why they thought it was crazy, uh, it's it's the it's a kind of a, I make a joke about it. The Thomistic farmer, um, who who um, looks upon what two guys are doing and says. Uh, that don't go there. Yeah. Right? And it don't. It doesn't go there. So one final question. Yeah. Just to encourage people to pick up the book, because uh, I read it, and then before I even got finished it, my wife started reading it, and now my parents have read it as well. It's one of those books that's really refreshing, because you're reading about cultural decline, but like as I mentioned earlier, with every single chapter, there's a, a sometimes difficult, but always comprehensive, and I think quite attainable solution to all of these different problems. So I really want to encourage as many people uh, to read it as possible. Just give us a a brief synopsis of, of how you think Christians should should approach culture and why you wrote the book. Well, I wrote the book in order to start getting things done, um, not just to complain, but to urge people in a cheerful way, finally in a cheerful way. I mean, look, I'm not going to put a pretty face on the disaster there. It's right. a complete disaster, okay? But hey, you know what? Uh, it was a complete disaster on a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago at Calvary. That was a complete disaster, too. Um, it's it's uh, uh, time to put our muscles and our brains um, to work and, and get things done. Now, the first thing, the, the, the first chapter of the book may be the, the leading light of the whole. Okay? And this is something that's well within our capacity. It's to clear our heads of lies. Okay? Um, there are lies that we are fed constantly from the media and from schools. Every single minute of every day, get rid of the lies. Clear your heads. Clear your heads of political slogans, transphobia. That's just a, that's, that's <laughs> can't. That's a lie. Okay? Uh, there is no such thing as a transgender person. Um, there may be men trying to pretend that they're women and vice versa. Uh, clear your heads of the lies. Okay? 
and recommit yourself to truth. Um, and, and truth is, uh, the truths that I'm talking about in the book are not difficult to attain. They are immediately graspable, observable by ordinary human beings. Um, you don't even need scripture <laughs> to tell you that a man can't give birth. Okay? Uh, <laughs> and, and any any five-year-old could tell you that. Um, just look at farm animals. Come on. Um, clear your heads of all the lies. Okay? Um, that's the first, uh, the, fu- the foundational order of business. Um, and maybe the, 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 the end of it all is to remember where we're going, okay, as Christians. Um, remember that uh, God, who is the author of nature, um, has an end for us that transcends even this nature. It is not counter to nature. It is not unnatural. Uh, but it builds upon the natural. Um, anyway, does that, would that help? Absolutely. Thanks a, lot. <laughs> Thanks a lot for taking the time to answer all these questions. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm delighted. 